Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or a single cask from a chosen distillery. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast today. I'm thrilled to bring on a guest that I have been uh, aiming to get on and dreaming to get on for a while now, and that is Mr. John Glazer of Compass Box Whiskey. John, welcome. Hello, David. Thank you. Nice to be here. So with this interview, I wanted to kind of skip ahead a little bit because uh, you've been interviewed six ways from Sunday about the kind of formation of Compass Box and the uh, the origin story in certain ways and also more recent things as the 20th anniversary has come and passed. So I wanted to try at least to ask some questions that you haven't heard or been asked before okay. different ways. So, so we'll start right off with the first one is um, instead of the kind of core origin story, um, you've mentioned in a couple of interviews and podcasts that when you first created those, those first two barrels of hedonism and your early products that it was a hard sell um, particularly that so in England but uh, a little less so in Scotland because they were just like anything that helps the industry please help us you know but in England in particular it was a hard sell I'm curious uh, if you could kind of elaborate on why that might be uh, or why that was and then from there you know the inflection points that have transformed you from two barrels into 40,000 cases a few years ago. Well, it's funny. I, literally last night, I was going through old photographs. Literally last night. It's so funny you bring this up at home. And I was going through and I was trying to call old photographs. And I came across the photographs from the day Compass Box was born meaning the day that we vatted together, or we had previously, several weeks prior, vatted together two casks, as you say, to create the first batch of hedonism, which was the first whiskey I created and bottled for Compass Box. So I was actually looking at pictures of the guys on the bottling line, bottling it. There were pictures of the guys um, rolling the old casks, the now empty casks out into a yard. Or actually, I'm actually, you roll them out of the yard so I could get some pictures and they roll them back because they were emptied already. And one was a, cam, uh, a cask of uh, 1990 canvas. And the other was a cask of 1980 Caledonian. And both of those grain whiskey distilleries uh, are long closed, long ago closed. Um, and but that was that was the start, and yeah, I, I, I spent many. I probably I spent something somewhere in the along the lines of six months uh, sourcing grain whiskey cask samples for that first batch of hedonism, which was completely inspired by an old bottling that Signatory did many many years ago, late nineties or uh, mid nineties of Canvas, and I was trying to recreate that kind of character aged grain whiskey from first fill American oak barrels. And uh, yeah, six months and uh, dozens, uh, maybe uh, over a hundred maybe various cask samples and trying to put them together in different ways. Young and old was always kind of the idea, young being 10, 12, 15, old being 20 to 30 or whatever. And yeah, that was it. 
that was the first fatty. So it's so funny you bring that up. And you're you're right. And in, in the early days of Compass Box, meaning like, <laughs> well, first day of Compass Box after we bottled, I literally put cases in the trunk of my car and drove down to Edinburgh and sold the first two cases to Royal Mile Whiskies at the time. And then the next day I drove back home to London and then I started trying to sell in London. And yeah, it was a little harder down here in London than it was up in Scotland. And, uh, you know, and, and, and consumers were a little bit more incredulous of what this American was trying to do, especially bottling a grain whiskey. And some people didn't know what grain whiskey was. And even those that did thought, oh, that's the cheap stuff they put in blends, right? So, you know, just, just, just didn't understand the product at all. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that the reason it was harder down here is because Compass Box is, is, was completely, and to this day still largely is, different from what people expect when they think of Scotch whiskey. This American guy and the first label is a bit crazy and grain whiskey. What the hell is that? And and so people were a little incredulous. I had the first whiskey taste event I ever went to here in London in April. So bottled it in 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 the first one um, in um, October twenty third two thousand, and then in April of two thousand one. I was at the very first whiskey festival uh, in the UK, in, in London anyway, uh, first whiskey live. And this old English chap came up to me and said, you know, what is this? Is this some kind of marketing gimmick? <laughs> but up in Scotland, it was different because, you know, it's a, a national drink. And, you know, for those who, <laughs> most of your listeners probably are too young to remember or know that, you know, Scotch 20 year, 25 years ago was really in a bad condition. You know, the, the industry was in the doldrums. Global shipments were flat or declining. Single malts were growing, yes, but, you know, the, the big brands were all, were blended Scotch whiskey brands. They were all in decline. And there were distillery closings and it was a tough time. And so I think the Scots, in comparison to down here in England, felt, hey, anybody, even a crazy American guy trying to do something to help us resuscitate the national drink is a good thing. It's probably more long-winded than you wanted for that. No, <laughs> no, it's perfect. No, it's perfect. Uh, and I mean, just looking forward and in, into the next, well, really from that point to to now, have there been certain inflection points in, in Compass Box's history where people, uh, especially outside of Scotland, has, have started to say, oh, this is something that we should be paying attention to. It's not just the green whiskey of old, um, you know, mass-produced, not much flavor. This is really something... To, to take a look at? Like, were there certain points that really kickstarted? Well, for grain whiskey, it's, it, well, whether we're talking about the way people viewed grain whiskey, which was that first product, hedonism, you know, it was a grain, was 100% grain whiskey, or we're talking about Compass Box as a, as a business and, you know, essentially a brand. Yes, yeah, inflection points. I think it, it's all been so, well, when I look back over 22 years, it seems also gradual. I guess, yeah, there was, early days, there was an inflection point for, for Compass Box and for Grain Whiskey. And so now I was talking about starting in October 2000, I was talking about that first whiskey festival in April of 2001, and then autumn of 2001. Now, you know, I, was, I remember I was trying desperately to sell my hedonism into 
uh, vintage house here in London. And the owner just, just, he wasn't having it. He was like, no one's asking for this product. And I was like, well, that's because I'm a new company and <laughs> no one has heard about me. Yeah. And he said, well, no one's asking. I'll come come back. and maybe. So I would come back. I literally would go back to the guy every month, you know, after starting the business from that October on. And I would just go back and say, hey, Compass Box, you know, I'll take a look. And then I started, you know, eventually in 2001, I even had a, a second product. He said, oh, no one's asking. Said, no one's asking. Okay, no one's asking. Now it's April, now it's October of 2001. And I am at one of the very early, maybe the first, I can't remember, I don't know, Whiskey Magazine Award Programs. And the late, great Michael Jackson, whiskey and beer writer, uh, legendary figure in our industry, as many people of your listeners will know, was was announcing the awards and here i am i'm he he announced the award for what they used to call pioneer of the year <laughs> pioneer of the year very fitting that it went to an american they gave it to me for for compass box and all i had was hedonism and i, I just launched a silo my second product and and I, that to me was an inflection point because there was this room full of the whiskey good and great of london and, and england and, at the time and i'm sure people down in scotland as well and there's Michael Jackson calling me, you know, his uh, comment was a little younger then. He's calling me an enfant terrible of Scotch whiskey because I was just trying to do things differently, but trying to do things in a way that would, you know, make great, create more interest for people in Scotch whiskey and and make Scotch help Scotch whiskey as an industry try to think about doing things differently and in a more interesting way. And so there was Michael Jackson giving me this award, and then you know I came up, I shook his hand, the little plaque and all the stuff, and and then later at the event I'm milling around having a drink. And who, who's there? Who would I see at one of the drink table? The owner of Vintage House. And I said, you know, here I am. You know, maybe some people will ask for me. And he said, come on, and see me next week. And eventually, yeah, he took an encompass box to his credit. Hey, That's an inflection point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a long time ago, but still. Thank you for absolutely. reminding me. No, I don't think I'd realized that... Uh, that that labeling in particular from Michael Jackson had been that early on in Copper Fox history. I, for some reason, I thought it was kind of the late two thousands, but to have it be literally the year after that's incredible. And I know, as you said, most of my readers and listeners will uh, know who Michael Jackson is within the spirits and beer industry, just in case we have a couple of new listeners who don't, not the singer. I'm not talking about the pop star, <laughs> not the pop star. Um, not the late pop star. Not the late pop star. The uh, unfortunately also late uh, writer, fantastic writer. So uh, with that, and the kind of disruption that that caused, in a good way, a a pillar of compass box. I think, in my eyes, certainly, and I think through yours as well, is the idea of intent. And creating something that with an intent. Yes. And by using certain names, imagery for the bottle, there's an intent to convey to the customer and consumer what you intend with that product. If you look at something like Orchard House, fruity, orchard wood, bright, you know. Um, and so you've talked in other interviews about the intent from your side in creating a product and marketing it as such. Instead of repeating the question, I wanted to flip it a little bit and kind of have you reflect on uh, people like Michael Jackson or, or 
a Jim Murray type or even like smaller guys like me who are just reviewing and tasting things and putting out what we think of things and how you think the other side should be reflecting on intent when we're evaluating products. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I think that, yeah. So I, um, I think more and more people in the world get this when it comes to the world of whiskey, that there are actually people behind these whiskeys in many cases, most cases, maybe in many cases, who are not just bottling whatever they have anymore, or not just bottling a market, what the marketing department says we, we should be bottling, creating, that there are real people who are thinking through what they want to bring to the world and why. Um, you know, even, you know, people think single malts, well, the single malt distillery, they make this thing and they just put it in a cask and 10 years, 12 years later, they, they bottle it and that's it. It's so much more, there's so much more thought into the better single malts anyway. Um, when it comes, for example, you know, blending casks of different types. I mean, people think that single malts are, you know, they, they don't think of single malts and blending in the same uh, sentence. Or There is blending that goes into the creation of most of the great bottlings of single malts in the world, because they're, unless we're talking about single cask, because there's, there's a blending of different casks and perhaps different cask types and different ages. There will be recipes for many great single malt bottlings. Blending is part and parcel of how, how, of how, how virtually all the great whiskeys of Scotland are made. And so when you're now and you're talking about blending different things, you're talking about, you know, there, there needs to be some thought that goes into why are you blending this with that? And I think we've, the industry has moved well beyond the days of, you know, um, just bishing things together because this is what you have. And, and, you know, 30, 40, 50 different components, you know, trying to make something that where nothing stands out, you know, you take, what if you went to, you know, the hardware store and blended together 30 different kinds of paint, you know, what would you end up with, you know, you get this kind of like gray. And that's, you know, not what we're trying to do with, with our approach to blending. It's, it's around creating distinctive products. It's about using blending for what it is, a, a way to create um, layers of flavor. It's about creating complexity. It's about creating something that no single distillery can create. And it is a creative process. And in turn, you're making something that is proprietary, that is yours. That's an expression of, of your creativity and your, your, your point of view on the world of, of, of whiskey, you know, in, in terms of whiskeys that you, know, you, you, you can access. So this is what I mean by intent. And I talk a lot about you know, the world of Scotch whiskey and, and, and all the whiskey drinkers' interest in the world of Scotch whiskey moving from a paradigm of place to a paradigm around the maker. It's the same idea, Dave. It's, it's this idea of, you know, this people believe, oh, it comes from this place, so it has to taste this way because it comes from this place. Well, you can make any style of, of malt whiskey spirit anywhere in Scotland. You don't have to make a, smoke, a peaty spirit because you're on an island and lots of, there are several exceptions. And you can, you don't have to make a, a light spirit because you're distilling in the lowlands and there are exceptions and so on and so forth. So we're moving and as people develop more of an appreciation and understanding of Scotch whiskey over time from this paradigm, oh, it's the place. Um, that, that works in wine perhaps when you talk about the whole concept of terroir. Wine. Moving from the paradigm of place to the paradigm of the maker. So I'm interested in, in certain single malt bottlings not because they come from this place and I expect a flavor like that or a style like that, 
because I'm interested in the people behind it and how they're thinking and the decisions they're making in terms of the casks they source to age their whiskeys, how long they keep them in those casks, how they combine the different casks and the different ages. I'm interested in the maker and the thinking that the maker brings to whiskey creation. And you mentioned uh, one of my favorite books of the last year, certainly, uh, Dave Broom's Sense of Place. Yeah. As yeah. an example of that. I dipped, I, this is so, I was dipping back into that last night, literally. <laughs> were, you, were, you, were you like you like in, in my house last night? Were you watching what I was doing? Going through the pictures? I, I, I went back to Dave Broom's books. I wanted to read what he wrote about um, Torbeg Distillery. Um, and I was up just up at Doorknock uh, in November and, and uh, James Sachs and I were visiting um, Thompson Brothers Distillery. So anyway, yeah, you're a great book. Yeah. And well, I think I go ahead and carry on. You were about to ask a question, I think, relating to that book. Well, part, part of it was that just to mention that, again, it's a fantastic book. And Dave, if you're listening, I'm still going to get you on here, too. But um, the idea that as as reviewers and as tasters outside of the making industry, so on this side, we should be incorporating those kinds of ideas of place, of intent, of meaning into yeah. our write-ups and our evaluations of things. Yeah, I think so, because that, you know, otherwise it's just a score, you know, or it's just a, a paragraph describing the, the aroma and the flavor, which is, of course, you know, <laughs> really important part of the whole thing. But what we're doing today is so much more than just fishing liquid into a bottle. And that's what I love about where whiskey has come over the last 20 odd years since I started Compass Box. All these new distilleries, all this, I mean, if you can compare today to 22 years ago, all this, these new makers, all these new drinkers, all, you know, and, and, the, and the level of interest people have, you know, there are so many whiskeys on the market today you know, relative to 22 years ago. There were a lot then, but there are so many today. And the world of wine is, is the same. The world of beer is the same. So many products on the market that we all have access to, especially now that we have everything shipped to our house from wherever. How do you make a decision on what you want to drink, what you want to try? It can't be enough just to say, oh, it's a new product from place X. Therefore, I want to try it. It's got to be more than that. So people, I know increasingly, people want to understand the people behind the products and the thinking that they apply to the creation of their products. Now you've got so much more than just a decision about, oh, it's from this place, so I want to, I want to try it. Now, I'm, now your, 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 your interest is now able to align with makers whose philosophies intrigue you or align with your philosophy or challenge yours, and therefore I want to try what this person is trying to do. Makes it so much more interesting, I think. No, I fully agree. And if you'll permit me just a second of self-aggrandizement on that point, I, I but mid-year last year, I changed my rating system so that, you know, if I evaluate something, it still gets a score, but intent is part of it. I want to not only get the intent and respect the intent of the maker, if they're aiming, if I'm trying Orchard House, let's just keep with the example, and you want me to be tasting a certain thing, from Orchard House to be getting a certain experience. Part of my scoring is going to be, am I getting that experience? Is that being conveyed to me? Um, and I think that it's, 
I'm, I'm pushing for fellow writers to do something like that and to recognize that as much as possible because it's, as you said, it's important, as Dave Room explains, it's important to understand that it's the makers more than even concepts of terroir, which I'm big on. It's really the makers that are making and intending you to experience something. So, yeah. 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 And I think I'll build on that, David, because you, know, you mentioned Dave's book, which is all about place. And I just, yeah, his, the way he his, thinks about place and its impact on whiskey is beautiful and real. It is different than the way we, the world tends to think about place and the idea of terroir when it comes to wine. He is more focused on the human element of place as well as, okay, there's, there's, atmospheric implications of atmosphere. The atmosphere where a whiskey is maturing you know, has, has an impact on how it matures. And peat from this part of the country will create a different set of flavors when you're using it than peat from it. So there's those kinds of things, but it's not like wine um, where it takes into account um, geography and soil and exposure and weather and and all these various things it's just it's a different concept and I, and so it's important i think for people to understand that yes place has an impact when you're thinking about it from a sort of anthropological perspective as dave does it's different than terroir when it, mm -hmm. you know the way it's thought of and applied to wine when you're thinking about whiskey so there's just that i just want to make that distinction Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, again, if well, when we get Dave on, we'll, we'll dive into that because it is an incredibly important distinction. So, going on to uh, yeah, I've got a couple of questions that we're going to have to skip just for time, but I'm going to focus as much as I can. Well, just okay, yeah, yeah. just okay. give me a time limit on my answers, and we'll get through everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, in terms of that inspiration and purpose and intent. You're, you and your team are known for drawing inspiration from the music world, the arts, the fine arts, the uh, painted arts, poetry, stories about Henry, uh, even wine luminaries like uh, Manfred Krankel. And to the point where you have a, a quote from Picasso on your, on your wall. Um, and that's from, that's from a different interview. That's again, not me like being in your house last night. So um <laughs> <laughs> being in the office. So were these kind of in very broad terms, these inspirational sources, something that you were always interested in? Like you were were you always someone who was interested in like I don't know, going to museums, for example, or looking through art books or or poetry and stuff? Or was that something that kind of grew alongside your interest in wine and then whiskey? and then became something you could draw inspiration from? I think, well, I've always been an arts dilettante. I think, you know, um, I've, you know, I've never done much in the way of visual arts in my life, um, but I've always been interested in it. And, and yeah, I, I studied literature and, and took lots of creative writing courses in university. I did win an award for creative writing when I was in university. And so it was important to me, yet nothing that, you know, I, I wouldn't say I pursued the fine arts, 
unless you include whiskey blending in fine arts, and not a lot of people do, I don't think at the moment, I don't think people put much thought into that, but um, yeah, so I guess the answer is, yeah, I've always been this kind of person um, who has always been interested in, always dabbled, you know? I took every like 100 level survey course I could in the liberal arts college I went to Miami University, like, you know, art for uh, art, visual arts and music and all sorts of literature and writing courses and, and yeah. So maybe it's always been, yes, yeah, something I'm, I'm fascinated by. Creative process I've always been fascinated by. So music for me is, is important, very important in my life, just as a listener, I'm not a musician. Um, and, but I'm fascinated in more than I think the average person understanding it and understanding techniques behind it, understanding the creative process behind fine arts and music in this in this particular. I'm, I'm so fascinated right now by Jacob Collier. Um, he's a familiar young English musician, um, genius. And I, you know, I don't say that about a lot of people because people use that you know, loosely. But he's just such a magical person. And at 28 years old or something, the, the work that he's done, I just find so fascinating. And only recently, I've been, you know, known about him for years and heard music of his for years and, you know, go back and listen to, you know, what he was doing, Stevie Wonder songs he was doing on YouTube when he was 18. I just only recently started, heard a, a broken record podcast where he was interviewed and he's just, he's just the way he, his creative process in creating music is it's, first of all, it's really intellectually, it's, it's just so out there and so fascinating. Um, but it's just, I, I, you know, I can't, has he inspired me in terms of, actually, he, he has actually inspired me talking about his creative process he does these concerts where he gets everyone singing. He has absolute pitch and he can get the whole audience of thousands of people singing like a choir and, and it sounds beautiful. And it did make me think, how could I do something like that when a whiskey tasting? You see me do a whiskey taste. Mm -hmm. How could I create something as interactive and beautiful uh, and, and as collaborative as that? Is what Jacob Collier does in one of his concerts. I don't know yet. I haven't figured it out. But anyway, I'm really now babbling. But it does. I hope I illustrated the point that inspiration comes from all sorts of different places. And uh, yeah, and sometimes you're just inspired to think about something. And maybe I won't be able to answer how to come up with a way to do all that. But you know, it's interesting to think about it. And maybe something else will come from that thinking, that line of thinking. So say, thank you, Jacob Collier. I mean, it's something we have to think about. I. I run tastings as well and you have to think about it. everyone's coming from a different perspective from a different place in their whiskey journey and uh, that's something that I, that would be incredibly difficult to kind of set everyone on uh, continuing the metaphor on a perfect pitch or an absolute pitch to start with mm -hmm. so that each person tasting is tasting the same kind of place along that tasting um, I can also tell you just on a personal level I also happen to have absolute pitch. Mm, cool. It is a blessing and a curse. <laughs> mm. um, it's a wonderful I thing. Mean, is I, I uh, but just going 
it's a wonderful thing, but I'd be curious to ask Jacob Collier at what pitch his absolute pitch is. Right. Because everyone's a little bit different in European um, orchestras. I'm going to babble for a second, but European orchestras tend to have a a higher pitch. It's like a 442, 444 hertz, whereas American will go lower. So if your absolute pitch is at about like an A at a 442, if you're listening to a European orchestra or an American orchestra, it, it's going to sound wrong. Even if they're mm. perfectly in tune, it's going to sound wrong. So um, there is something to be explored about finding that absolute even playing field for everyone and, and tasting. Mm -hmm. um, if if you manage to do it or if you find even a hypothetical way to do it. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, I, well, then I, everybody should who's interested in this and you're, you should listen to that Broken Record podcast. It's two parts, Jacob Collier. And the other thing is maybe you just thinking about this and listening to you and thinking about this, maybe it's in whiskey, maybe it's just, you know, Jim McEwen was famous and, and he may still be out there doing tastings, I hope so, for, you know, at the end of a tasting, standing up on the table, you know, and getting everybody to, you know, toast, Langevin, the whole thing. And maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe that's how you bring everybody together at a whiskey tasting. It's not something I typically do, um, but just the idea of, you know, something that is bringing everyone together and it's collaborative and celebratory of the moment and in, you know, and, and inherently celebrating the reason we're all there, not music in this case, but whiskey. Anyway, thank you. That's, that's maybe there's something there. Yeah. Who knows? And I must I'll say, as, table next time. <laughs> hey, look, I, I have to say as, as excellent as your whiskey tasting was, and this is with, meant with no disrespect at all to, with you, the two that I've been on with Jim McEwen were, were just, as I'm sure you know, it's just next level. There's something. Yeah. He's got that genocide. Well, that's just incredible. Yeah. yeah. But, All right. You can go find him on video somewhere and be inspired. Jim, Absolutely. I'm going to be out there looking for you. <laughs> Thank you, David. Absolutely. Uh, so the next question I wanted to ask was uh, really about about a new aspect of the process that I hadn't known that compass box did before, which was, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, you started to fill your own casks. And it was yeah, 10 years ago. I hadn't yeah. heard about. It. Yeah. So um, to, to use the Picasso quote that you have, you know, I begin with an idea that becomes something else. This question kind of came out of that as well, or just became something new. Originally I was going to ask if you'd had ever requested of a distillery for them to create a distillate for you of a certain character or a certain casking so that you could use it down the road. Um, that still may be a valid, a valid question on its own, but instead um, I'll just ask, you know, now that you've had your own cask for, as you say, close to 10 years, what was the point at which you felt that you could do this and well, let's start with that. What was the point at which you felt like you could do this? And then I have the, a follow-up question with that. It was when we could afford to do it. It was all about financing and money. That's, you know, because it's expensive to buy great quality wood, cooper, you know, oak, casks, and it's expensive to buy spirit um, from whatever distillery, doesn't matter, and then lay it down and then, you know, not consider using it in your business for many, many years. That's an expensive proposition. So it just took us a long time to get into a financial 
position where we could do that. That's that's all it was. Yeah. Hey, more than not, more often than not, the answer is simply money. Honestly, <laughs> that's what I've been finding. Um, but the the follow up question to that, and it goes to your point about the costs, are that you know you're not only getting your own casks, you're filling to maybe ninety percent of the cast to allow yeah, for that. We, yeah, we yeah. we don't fill fill them full. We leave a little bit uh, what we call bulge, so it enhances oxidation. Slightly. And uh, with that, this is just came to me, but do you prefer um, aging the cast on their side or more kind of palletized? On the, on the side, yes, yes. On the side. Okay, so that's so more air to liquid surface area. Makes sense. Especially because in many cases, you know, for example, when we've, we create these custom-made French oak casts that have heavy toasted French oak on the heads of the casks, and then the bodies of the casks are you know, used American oak. And so the important thing is we want the whiskeys to interact with that beautiful, high quality, heavy toasted French oak you know, to take on flavor from, from those. So yeah, everything's aged on uh, on its side. And then the other uh, interesting factoid was that you don't fill the industry standard of 63.5 ABV, you fill a little lower at 58%. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Malt, both malt whiskey and grain whiskeys, very unusual. Um, we do it because as a lot of people in the industry know, um, and as Dr. Jim's, the late Dr. Jim Swan, you know, told me for years, uh, there have been enough studies in Scotland to show that you will, at, at lower strengths below the standard 63.5% filling strength in Scotland, you will still get the same extraction of flavor materials from the wood at lower strengths as you do at higher strength. However, when you come to bottle years later, you add and you, and you want to dilute your cask, assuming you want to dilute it to a bottling strength, say forty-six percent or whatever. You use you you use you need less water to dilute to your bottling strength, so you're maintaining a higher concentration of flavor materials in the liquid, and, and not just flavor materials that have been extracted out from the cask wood, but also over time they will have interacted with the spirit and through you know, slow oxidation created new complex, more complexity, more complex flavors. And so on the whole, you know, our, our, our belief is that you get more complexity in the whiskey at low, slightly lower filling strength than traditional. And that's why we do that. And it's been, I know in Scotland, it's, it's slightly different. As you said, the, the industry standard is a little higher, uh, mainly because they're using reused casks. So I've got a little, need a little more punch sometimes, or people think they need a little more punch in order to get more extraction from the wood. But um, we are noticing in the U.S. now more and more companies using a lower entry proof. You know, Michter's using about 103. MGP, yeah. I think, uses 110. Um, and Peerless going as low as 100 sometimes. And so the whiskeys coming out of there are certainly, they just are. They're more intensely flavorful, less watered down. And I, you know, the big guys can still create good whiskeys at 125 entry proof. But You know what? You made me think of something here, Dan. You know, <clears throat> again, it comes back to intent comes back to intent. What do you want to create? And I'm not saying that 58% is better than 63 and a half. Um, it, for what, when we started filling 10 years ago, um, it was what we wanted. We wanted to create whiskeys with more oak extractive and greater complexity, therefore, over time. I can see a day where, and we're not 
doing it right now, but there could be, we couldn't decide some at some point that actually we don't, we want to we want to fill it at different at higher strength because we actually want to create something different. We want to create whiskey over time with less oak extractives and, and all the flavor that comes from that as a blending component. So I guess what I'm saying is it's it is it's it's back to the your your point about intent. What are you trying to create? Um, what are you trying to create? Um, and there's not one way that's necessarily better than the other. What I will say is when I started Compass Box 22 years ago, when most casks of whiskey in, in Scotland were um, reused hogsheads, and then and, and, the, and the practice of reusing and reusing and reusing was was more common than it is today. It's still it's still common. There was just so many boring whiskeys, you know, even over well over 10 years of age, when you're aging in casks that have been reused so many times, there were just a lot of really boring whiskeys. And, you know, so for me, um, oak driven styles of maturation were far more interesting. But we're starting to see that change right now. And that's Orchard House, which you mentioned earlier, is, a, is an example of that from our portfolio. It is, it is the most spirit forward. Well, that's not true. It's Pete Monster and, and Orchard House are the most spirit forward styles uh, that we make. And I would, uh, and I never would have made that whiskey Orchard House 15 years ago. So I was much more interested, as most consumers were, largely speaking, interested in oak driven styles. And now, now, now I'm not even talking about sherry bombs. I'm just talking about, you know, more active American oak, generally speaking, and the complexity that, that can create over time and the lovely flavors that, that can create over time. But things change. So I'm more and more interested today in spirit-driven maturation equal, in, alongside oak-driven maturation. Because things change and the, our, our intent will, will change over time. Can change. The newest line from Impex Beverages has arrived. Hakata whiskey is distilled and matured in Fukuoka, Japan by the Hikari Distillery, using 100% barley with a touch of koji fermentation to add savory umami to the pores. Four expressions are currently available, the 10-year, 12-year, 16-year, and 18-year. All are fully matured in first fill and refill Oloroso and PX sherry casks, then bottled at 42% ABV. Each release speaks to a different palate, and each is truly unique. If you love sherry dominance, go for the 10-year. The 12-year adds reminders of red wine sangria and a stone fruit salad. The 16-year lessens the sherry influence a bit to open juicy fruit and bubble tape gum, jelly donuts, taking your thought to the boldest of the bold Australian Cabernet Sauvignons, and offering a demi-glass-like mouthfeel. Finally, the 18-year-old returns to those sherry roots, bolstered by the Australian red sensations from the 16-year and inky black tempranillo wine feelings, imparting black cherry, golden raisins, and dark honey in Lady Grey tea. Each of these expressions brings a different dimension to the sherry, and there is truly one for every palate. Go to impexbev.com slash hakata, that's H-A-K-A-T-A, to find out more, and grab a bottle at your favorite premium whiskey shop today. Hey, whiskey ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. To take advantage of this podcast-only offer, 
please go to smwsa.com, that's Scotch Mall Whiskey Society of America, and put in code WRP for Whiskey Ring Podcast at checkout for 25% off your first year subscription. I want to just stop and do a side tangent very quickly on one particular product. Uh, it's a newer limited release that you did, the Velocore. Yeah. Um, so I'm a recovering medievalist and a lover of anything <laughs> old. So the smell of old books, which is the meaning of Velocore, is uh, quite near and dear to my heart. I have not yet uh, found a bottle, let alone tasted it, but um, it came up when I was speaking with Kevin Shaw of Stranger and Stranger. Um, which was kind of a precursor to this interview. And he mentioned that you, in working with Stranger and Stranger, with, which you've given with it for over a decade now, right? 12, 13 years, something like oh, that? 15, yeah. 15, yeah. Um, so, you know, you give them a briefing of what you're intending for the whiskey. Uh, sometimes it's a sentence or two, sometimes it's a paragraph. But when you have these ideas, and you're trying to convey them what's what is the the number one thing that you want to put in one of those briefings to kevin and his team mm -hmm. when you've got a new product for them to create a label for it's a feeling an emotion and we're talking about stranger and stranger here our, our package design partners for yeah 15 years or maybe a little, a little i can't remember now at least that um and yeah, we've got such a great working relationship now. And as it sounds like he, Kevin was pointing out, yeah, the best design briefs are concise and, you know, I like them to fit on one page. <laughs> um, and they, we're trying to convey a, a feeling, an emotion. James and I were talking about this last week about uh, a, a brief that we're giving to them for... Uh, for the um, for I'm trying to remember which project it was for, it doesn't really matter. It was you know what's the I, what's the feeling? We were, we were referencing these old uh, early twentieth century European illustrators, and it was sort of around you know sort of Art Nouveau period, and you know, there, there were several different illustration styles that were kind of we were looking at. They all kind of came out of the same time period. And so we're all kind of reacting to um, illustrative styles around them at that time in history. They were doing it in slightly different ways and they had slightly different feelings to them. And that's what we were talking about. I said, well, okay, we, we can't give them all these as reference points because they'll be confused. What is the feeling? We can reference these as what they were trying to do in response to their time and the, uh, but what's the feeling we want this label to convey to, 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 to the whiskey drinker? And that's the central part of a great design brief, I think. And do you often create, let's say, just as simple as the name? Is that something that usually comes from you or comes farther down the road in discussion with the design team? We almost always, and I can only think of one time off the top of my head, and we've done over 100 and heading toward 150 <laughs> different whiskeys if you include all the limited editions over the years. We, 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 there's always a name. Um, so, so our design briefs, yeah, we've got an idea of the liquid 
and we've got a name which we think encapsulates the idea behind that liquid in some way or connects to that liquid in some way. And uh, yeah, and then we've got, you know, what is, you know, what's the emotion of, of, of this whiskey? So those, those are the key parts of the brief. Yeah, we, I, I'll just say it for the sake of discussion. We always have a name for the brief uh, because it's, uh, there's the saying in design um, for in graphic design that it, there's nothing like the freedom of tight briefs. And, and it's just, you know, it's this joke, but it's, 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 and it, it's true for, I think, the creative process in general, whatever we're talking about graphic design, we're talking about, you know, music or Jacob Collier talking about in that broken record podcast about, um, you know, wanting to improvise a ballad in a concert, you know, he's only got these musicians with him um, and he's only got these instruments. And, you know, so he's constrained by what he could do with this ballad, which is different than when you're in the studio with your music software and you've got millions of different, you know, options in terms of where you can go with it and instruments you can bring in and sounds. You can... So there's nothing like the freedom of type briefs. So really great work, I think, comes out of constraint. Not a constraint. Because if you just say, hey, make me something pretty, <laughs> where do you start, right? Yeah. Um, but make me something that makes people feel the freedom they have when they're lying on their back, uh, you know, on acid, staring up at the spice tree. Now, I'm not condoning the use of drugs like that right now. I'm just actually connecting back to that design brief that I think Kevin Shaw from Stranger and Stranger was alluding to, I know he was alluding to, referencing, that was kind of the essence of the original design brief for Spice Tree. That was the, that was it. And I can also see an element of that uh, with the uh, Hedonism series. And I must admit the Hedonism Felicitas, I think I told Kevin was my favorite label uh, that I've ever seen before I saw the Velocor, honestly. But I can see that idea of just the hallucinogenic idea of the ideas just pouring out of someone's head and or exploding yeah. frankly out of someone's head so yeah I see that. yeah that's a good way to describe it yeah that was an incredibly layered piece of design um and both in its graphic design but also in the way it is printed form you know in terms of embossing and the inks and so forth yeah pretty good great one so uh, I think we have time for about maybe maybe one more question here so your team and i've uh i've had the pleasure of meeting you i hope to to meet you know james and, and jill but your team is if i can use the word notoriously small for their for in-house when you're thinking about bringing someone on to help like let's say when greg glass decided you know it was his time to move on and, and we're bringing in james or when jill came on um what kind of tests evaluations measures do you go through to figure out whether this person is right to bring on to such a small nucleus from which all of this emanates well yeah so um well we will we, we always do um a sensory assessment make sure that people have 
you know, you don't have, people don't have to be super tasters, um, but it's just understanding people's ability to um, uh, detect and assess certain aromas. So that we need a, a that's that's sort of the, the functional part. But the, 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 the other, and really argue, and the more important aspect is the way people think. And about creativity, about whiskey, and how they connect, okay? And then, um, and then how people think about compass box. So it only makes sense for us to bring in people who are gonna be involved in whiskey making, who, if, if, if they don't know much about compass box or have never heard of compass box, then they're probably, that's fine, but they're probably working in a world of whiskey that wouldn't work with us, wouldn't align with the way we operate and think. So there, yeah, it is a prerequisite that people have a connection to Compass Box if they want to work here in whiskey making. Um, and then it's how do people think and what your sense of deliciousness is in whiskey. And yeah, and as I said, you know, also a baseline of, 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 of sensory ability. Does that Solid answer the answer. question? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and actually you have gone against your own uh, claims of babblings. I think that was a great answer. Honestly, you've gone against your own claims of that. So we have time for one more and then I promise I will let you go, which is simply your pushes for transparency and for updating laws, whether it's in the 2005, 2016 uh, have become something of a, a legend surrounding you, if you will. And uh, while it was disruptive, I don't think anyone would see them as as anything other than for the benefit of the industry or intending to be the benefit of the industry. And if you're wondering, listener, what I'm babbling about, uh, these are quote unquote fights with the uh, Scotch Whiskey Association. So, so rather than rehash those, which have been extensively covered, instead I wanted to kind of finish this off with a look to where we are now. So as new whiskey regulations are developed and published, whether it's in Scotland or also we see them in Japan in 2020 or 2021, excuse me, uh, new regulations potentially around American single malt in the US and around straight designations in the US, uh, new brands coming online like Waterford and what they're doing with transparency and terroir in Ireland. Do you see either a real or perceived increase in transparency in the whiskey world. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I've got the, the, the ability to compare today, where we are today with where the whiskey world was 22 years ago when I started or back in 1994 when I first, you know, went from the U.S. to to Scotland to visit distilleries, you know, I've seen a lot, a lot evolve, and yeah. So transparency is the the, the whiskey makers and even the, some of the big brands are are a lot more open than they used to be. Not everybody, but and, and um, but you know, even talking about cask types, you know, it might surprise some of your listeners that. 
22 years ago, you know, trying to understand what kind of types of casks of whiskey was Asian was hard. You know, it wasn't stuff that the companies disclosed. It wasn't stuff that they typically put on their, even their back label. You know, what was the mix of casks in this? And it's a lot more common today. And I think that is a good thing. And I would also add to that that, yeah, I have, you said that the fights that, that we've had with the Scotch Whiskey Association and so forth, I, I would characterize them more as efforts to enlighten, <laughs> you know, efforts to enlighten. I mean, people say, oh yeah, Compass Box, you know, they're rebels and everything. I don't, I've never looked at myself as a rebel. Even back to Michael Jackson, you know, terrible, kind of suggests rebel. And I've never looked at myself or what we do as a business as a rebel. Even when, you know, the whole David and Goliath thing of challenging the Scotch Whiskey Association on, you know, on French oak interstaves all, all those years ago, on definitions when UK Parliament changed the debt of the law on Scotch whiskey, and on transparency, you know, several years ago, challenging the Scotch Whiskey Association to change EU law back when we were part of the EU. You know, to me, it was always, it wasn't a rabble rousing. It was trying to defend common sense in the name of, you know, helping make the world of Scotch whiskey, the industry, if you will, stronger. And, 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 and make us, in the eyes of whiskey drinkers, look like we know what we're, we've got a finger on the pulse, that we're, you know, we're in, we're in touch with, the, with reality and the way people think and what they want to know about Scotch whiskey. So I've always thought, not so much rebel, but more, yeah, I would accept the, the, the label of maverick. I think that's positive. You know, it, 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 it's just suggestive of a desire to make change when change will be good for, you know, for all of us. That's what all these things have been about. And I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, people are, the world of whiskey is becoming more transparent. There's still a long way to go and that law really has to be changed at some point. And I'm just sort of hanging out for the right time to go back so that we can legally put on our website the age of every single component of every whiskey recipe that we create. Instead, you know, you, you only put the age of the youngest, but we do these charts, these pie charts on the website with breaks down every single different whiskey component. We used to put the ages on there and then we got in trouble for that. Somebody called us into the SWA on that. One day, I think the, the industry will uh, wake up to common sense on that one. And you can be, well, last time you got Bruchladic on your side and who knows who you'll get next time to There were loads to of join people you. on our side. Loads yeah. of people. It's just, you know, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who really wants to play the politics. <laughs> I, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm very happy to support and, and, uh, and raise my hand and raise my head above the parapet, if you will, when I see a cause that requires, uh, needs attention. Um, yeah. Am I going to get go lobby 27 members of the EU parliament? No, no, that's probably not for me. <laughs> Our 20. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, anyway. the meantime, in the meantime, you'll be the, the heretics with the good intent. I've heard you put it as well. I like that. Yes. You can be heretical with positive intent. I totally subscribe to that, David. Wonderful. John, we are at the top of the hour. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. And I have. Yeah. And um, hang out for just a second and I will close out our recording. Thanks, David. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps, or 
email me at david at whiskeymywritering.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyandmywedding That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume Under the Influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers Group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.